welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is officially now self-employed. Yes, last week was my last day at my job. Um, it was super weird. I literally didn't hear from anyone at all on my last day, including my boss. So yeah, it was weird. I feel weird about it. But I also feel really excited about what's going to happen next. Um you know, what adventures will life offer now? I'm pretty excited. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 171. And today my guest is Danielle Vermeer, the co-founder and CEO of Teleport. Now, what is Teleport, you are all asking? Well, Teleport is a next-gen thrifting app to discover, buy, and sell from outfit videos. Imagine shopping secondhand via a TikTok-style platform, but with a lot more community and a lot more inspiration attached to it. This episode will feature part one of our conversation where we will be discussing why Shein is so popular with Gen Z and many, many millennials, despite our drive for social and environmental justice. It's definitely something that's on my mind that I get asked about a lot, so I'm excited to break that down with Danielle. Before we jump into that conversation, I think it's a great time sort of catch up, sort of revisit, kind of update where the fashion industry is, where it started, where it is now, particularly when we talk about fast fashion and now ultra fast fashion. As we talk about often here at Clothes Horse, there was a time when clothing was, you know, kind of expensive or at least more expensive than it is now in this century. And while that seems like it must have been so long ago, it was actually the 1990s and even the first few years of the century. Yeah, Y2K clothing was actually kind of pricey, especially when we compare those prices to now. And in the 1990s and earlier, the idea of a shopping haul didn't really exist. Maybe if you did a whole day of Christmas shopping or you were doing your back-to-school shopping with your mom, which was usually just a few pairs of jeans, a couple of shirts, maybe some new shoes and a backpack, it wasn't a whole new wardrobe in one foul swoop. Now, my birthday is in August, which means, one, I never got to bring cupcakes to school on my birthday, which I still, I'm still a little miffed about, but also... And this is kind of unfair, but all of you who have birthdays near Christmas will understand the same feeling. Often, back-to-school shopping is kind of your birthday present. So school clothes and a trapper keeper and some pens, maybe a backpack. You would have needed them anyway for school, but now it's your birthday present. So I actually never really loved back-to-school shopping. It was really stressful. We're going to talk about more how shopping was different. But I specifically remember what I think of as the best back-to-school shopping slash birthday shopping trip of my life with my grandma. I want to say it was it was either the summer before eighth grade or ninth grade, but we went to this new store in town called TJ Maxx, and I got three outfits, and they were all really sick and matchy-matchy, like the denim pants. I guess those are called jeans. <laughs> says the person who never wears pants. Uh, anyway, the the pants had a matching jacket, which had a matching shirt kind of situation. And then, of course, my grandma was like, well, we got to get matching socks. And it was 
very exciting. So that was probably the closest I've ever come to a haul in my life that wasn't a grocery haul. <laughs> but that was kind of unusual, right? For that for that time period. Shopping at that point was kind of work. You had to drive there, park, walk around, try on stuff, maybe not find what you liked in the first place. So get back in the car and go to the next place. Buying a lot of stuff at once was very challenging because it required a lot of time and patience. And it could become just such such a chore. And to make things more complicated, you had to actually encounter, like find the things you wanted to wear that fit you, that you really needed. You had to do that IRL, which meant you might not find that much stuff that checked those boxes. On those days with my family as a kid, when we had to do the back to school shopping in like one day, it was never successful because Once again, it was just sort of like everybody gets fatigued. You're going to all these different places. Everybody's getting grouchy. You're like 14 and you don't want to wear what your mom tells you to wear, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was different, right? Then fast fashion arrived on the scene. In the beginning, it was just a few retailers with Forever 21 and Zara specifically leading this transformation. And I do mean that transformation of the way clothing was made and sold to us. For decades, retailers and brands would just drop a new collection of products every month at most, but primarily carry the same stuff for a whole season, just adding new colorways or special items throughout that season. And this this shaped consumer behavior in a few ways. For one, if you weren't feeling a brand's trend direction, color palette, or general product assortment during a season, you were sort of out of luck and you probably wouldn't go back to that store for a few months. And if lots of customers didn't like what that brand was offering, well, then the brand was out of luck, experiencing lower sales and being forced to sell more stuff at a markdown to get rid of it. Seriously, picking the wrong product assortment in that era could destroy a business or at least make it really hard for them to get back on track for a while. Furthermore, as a customer, you didn't feel like you had to visit a store regularly in case you missed out on something, which feels like such a foreign concept at this point. (laughs) There just wasn't a lot of new stuff to snag. Once a month or every few months would do just fine. You weren't gonna miss anything. From an internal perspective, dropping new product far less often meant that retailers had plenty of time to get fit, materials, and all of the other details just right. The timeline for producing product was so much slower that a retailer would start working on a delivery nine months in advance, maybe six months at the fastest. They'd be ideating, designing, sampling, writing orders, continuing to do fittings and wear tests all up to the very end until finally receiving the product shipped the slow way on a boat across the ocean months later. That model is where my career began. I worked for a retailer whose quality was, to be fair, in line with fast fashion, and it definitely targeted a younger customer, but we still planned our product offering well in advance. And while we delivered new items every month, it wasn't a whole new store every week. 
In one of my categories, I might have six to 10 new styles each month, plus reorders and color updates on bestsellers. That was another thing that was a key part of retail at that point. Lots of what we called evergreen styles that we carried for years on end, adding new colors here and there to get people to buy more of them, but sticking with the same thing. If you bought a pair of skinny jeans and liked them, odds were high that you could come back and buy the same pair in three months, six months, or even a year later. Forever 21 and Zara were different. Stores received new styles every week, sometimes every day, and everything was less expensive than other brands. Furthermore, FOMO was a big part of the business model. If you didn't visit regularly and buy something as soon as you saw it, it probably wouldn't be there the next time you went in. And you would never find it again because it probably wouldn't come back. These brands were not in the evergreen business like all the other retailers. It was all about newness. And when you went into these stores, rather than seeing two to three trend concepts, think like aesthetics themes, a lot of retailers would plan their store layout around these zones of product themes, usually two to three zones. That was the standard for retail, right? Fast fashion, Forever 21 and Zara, they were very different. They would have a dozen different trends within their stores, just, you know, grouped together on one or two racks. It kind of felt like there was something for everyone. Forever 21 and Zara did have one serious catch, though. The steady flow of new products at the lowest prices meant customers had to make a trade-off. Basically, they could have those things for sure, the trends, the constant newness, but that meant sacrificing quality and fit. These clothes were quasi-disposable, often not holding up for very many wears or being unable to survive even one wash cycle. The fit was inconsistent and not great, but it worked because customers, it turned out, preferred low prices and trendiness. These brands were trading in volume. Get a customer to come in shopping every week, which they will because there'll be something new every week. Sell them a few items every time, which you will because the prices are low. And suddenly you could run a highly profitable billion dollar business off of selling very inexpensive clothing. Furthermore, the original fast fashion brands gave millennials something they had never had before, and that was personal choice and like almost limitless personal choice. Now that they were moving into adulthood, not only did they have the personal freedom to wear what they wanted, They also had the option of many more choices. And if they didn't like what they were offered this week, that was okay because there would be new stuff next week. It felt like an endless buffet of clothing where there was always something you needed and wanted. And this is revelatory when you are in that phase of life where you are constantly trying out new things as you figure out who you are, and what you like. Clothing is obviously a huge part of that. The other non-fast fashion retailers initially turned up their noses at the original fast fashion brand. Seriously, at my employer, we would laugh and laugh and snark about Forever 21, 
even though a lot of us would go shopping there after work. But we looked at those brands and they said, well, it's not going to last. They're cheap. They lack brand cachet. There's nothing aspirational about them. And surely customers will eventually walk away from the racks of low quality polyester clothing. But the thing is, they didn't. And when the recession began in 2008, more and more people opted into fast fashion. In fact, as regular retailers struggled, Forever 21 and Zara were opening up more and more stores, reaching more and more customers, just stealing them away from everyone else. Ultimately, the rest of the retail industry had no choice but to adopt the fast fashion model too, selling as much stuff as possible as often as possible and delivering new stuff as often as possible to get those customers to come back in and shop as often as possible, right? First, everyone raced their way to the bottom in terms of pricing with endless sales and permanent promos. And when low prices were no longer a unique selling point because everyone was pricing the same, it shifted into being the first to offer a trend, no matter how specific or small. And this, this changed everything. Now customers felt the drive to shop multiple times a week, whether that was by visiting a store or shopping online. In fact, as shopping shifted more and more online, retailers were able to offer even more new styles every day or week because they were no longer confined by what they could fit into a brick and mortar store. That said, brick and mortar stores found themselves re-merchandising the stores week after week after week as the trends and the product just kept flowing in and out at a faster and faster rate. Social media partnerships with influencers gave retailers a chance to normalize a steady flow of new clothes through outfit of the day posts. Yes, there was a time in my life where I don't even know if I noticed what my friends were wearing or whether they had worn it before or whether it was new without them telling me. But suddenly, social media normalized this idea of something new for every single post and event. We all know this. We have a lot of work to dismantle that, and I know we've made a lot of progress there. There's still a lot more work to do. (laughs) Every trend, no matter how fleeting, could be shown on Instagram or Tumblr building even more customer interest in these trends. So it was just this machine, the symbiotic relationship between social media and fast fashion, where fast fashion would feed the product to social media, but social media would kind of feed back the next evolution to fast fashion and just went on and on. When I think of how many style trends came from Tumblr and Instagram, into fast fashion rather than the other way around, it's fascinating to me because when I began my career, yes, we were starting to look at street style as an influence, but most style trends actually came from the runway down rather than from the people up, right? And this is what we saw begin to pick up momentum during this time period. And really, it's the way it all works now. I haven't looked at a fashion show for so long, but I could tell you all of the latest trends on TikTok, right? It's really, really interesting. This also had an impact on what it was like to work within the industry. In fact, people working within the industry were working faster, 
with less time. Rather than planning months and months out as they had in the past, it was all happening in one to three months. Everything shipped via air, meaning on an airplane, to save time. And of course, with less time, there were less fittings, if any at all, and less opportunities to get the product just right. Often I would have to say, just go straight to production, even if I hadn't seen a full sample, just saw a photo, because that's where we were with the timeline. So we're getting product that's just not as good, but Forever 21 and Zara had already proven that customers prioritized price and newness over quality and fit, and it never really went back. In fact, as retailers work to cut costs year after year after year, because that's how retail works, you always have to be more profitable this year than you were last year, they push the envelope in terms of just how, well, shitty something could be and still be desirable. And customers didn't push back. I liken it to when you, if you're like me, you resist the need to upgrade your phone for as long as possible, right? So long after your contract on that phone has expired, you're up for an upgrade. You're like, I don't wanna fall into this iPhone industrial complex of yet another iPhone, you know, what's going to happen with this one? It feels so wasteful. These are all things we think about, right? And so you hit that two-year mark with your phone and all of a sudden it starts getting a little weird, right? Like the on-off button doesn't work. So then you have to use the assistive features to be able to turn the phone off and on using the touch screen, right? And soon you can only use one app at a time, right? And maybe sometimes you can't even make phone calls anymore. And then you have to basically constantly keep the phone plugged in because the battery no longer holds a charge. And you you just get used to it. And you don't realize how it's sort of adding this additional layer of subconscious stress to your life until you finally are forced into a corner where you have to get a new phone because suddenly it just literally doesn't do anything anymore, right? And you're like, it's like this one day where you're like, there's this epic failure of your phone and now you can't even communicate with the outside world and you finally give in and you get that new phone and you plug it in and you start using it and you're like, wow, how how have I been living like this for so long, right? That's kind of where we are with clothing quality and fit at this point, but we haven't had the new phone version of it yet to understand just how bad it is. Maybe some of us are starting to realize that more and more, but it's not like a widespread realization yet. We just kind of have accepted that clothing is quasi-disposable, Spoiler, the thing is, none of these clothes are disposable. They live for centuries in landfills when we're done with them. They have this whole much longer life outside of us, and they don't make us very happy in the first place because they don't fit great, and they make us smelly, and we feel less than ideal. But we've come to expect or accept that that is what it is to buy new clothing, is that it's always a little disappointing, right? Forever 21, Zara, and H&M, what I consider the original fast fashion brands, continued to lead the pack even after every other brand had adopted the fast fashion model. They opened stores across the U.S., becoming accessible to just about everyone. Well, 
not everyone, because these brands were still not addressing extended sizing. Put a pin in that thought because we will come back to it. Forever 21 was expanding its store footprint, eating up neighboring spaces in malls and taking over anchor spaces once occupied by department stores. I have been to multiple Forever 21s on my travels that were in old Saks Fifth Avenue spaces or old Sears spaces, just taking on those huge department store footprints. For a Forever 21, That is so much product and so much financial risk, to be honest. By 2019, according to Amanda Mole, quote, the brand's average store had grown to nearly 40,000 square feet, more than 30% bigger than the average Best Buy. Now, I know that we have people around the world listening to Close Horse now. This is not a humble brag. So you may not know what Best Buy is, but it is an enormous electronics store, massive footprint, comparable in size, in my opinion, to a supermarket, very big. What a wild thing that a Forever 21 would be even bigger than that. Well, just when we thought clothing couldn't get cheaper or worse or more disappointing or whatever adjective you wanna use, Just when we thought trends couldn't move faster, enter ultra fast fashion, which immediately made Forever 21 and Zara and H&M look like out of touch dinosaurs. You know the way you've been feeling about department stores your whole adult life? Well, ultra fast fashion makes Forever 21 and Zara and H&M feel like Macy's, you know? In fact, by October 2019, there was a clear indicator that something was changing on the retail and fashion landscape. By now, numerous fast fashion brands had come and gone, including Wet Seal and Charlotte Russe. The market seemed to be oversaturated now that everyone had adopted the fast fashion model. It didn't help, and this is very interesting, you don't see it until you fully look back, that the illusion of choice that millennials had experienced in the first few years of fast fashion had seemed to be, well, just what I said, an illusion. Because over time, every retailer began selling the same thing as they rushed to adopt every trend and offer something to every customer. Well, once again, except for larger customers, but we'll get to that in a minute. If you remember off the shoulder blouses lingering for far too long or boho festival aesthetic getting so watered down and tired, well, that was part of this sort of uniformity that fast fashion began to embody. Everybody was selling the same thing, and if you didn't like the current trends or had moved on, you were out of luck, just like the pre-fast fashion era. It was possible to not want to buy anything offered to you for months because nobody had anything you liked. Furthermore, people cared less about shopping in real life. E-commerce was easier and convenient, Most retailers offered free shipping and returns at this point, so there was no risk in shopping online. It was no longer this unknown thing. And Forever 21, you know, have been focusing all of their money and time on this massive store expansion, taking on these huge store footprints. As a result, 
They'd been late to the online shopping game, and so their website felt very uncool. Their shipping took forever. Their product photography wasn't aspirational or interesting, and they seemed to be missing more and more trends. And that that part, I just want to say, as a person who's worked as a buyer during the rise and decline of Forever 21, that was the part that almost, it almost made me a little sad because I... I could say a lot of bad things about Forever 21 for sure throughout my career, but one thing that I always noted was that they were first on every trend, no matter how small. And I worked for a lot of very trendy, iconic millennial brands during that time period, and we were all like, ugh, Forever 21, why do you always get there first? Now, Forever 21, legendarily terrible place to work as a buyer, a designer, really any job role. And my ears have been filled with stories about it over the years, especially working in LA. You work with a lot of people who have passed through Forever 21 almost as a rite of passage. So this was a terrible company that everybody in the industry knew was terrible. And there were definitely a lot of really sketchy, unethical things happening that we couldn't even begin to imagine. But once again, they had this business model that was just dominating and just owning every trend first. It was something in the industry you could almost admire. But here they were now, missing out on these trends. And furthermore, they weren't expanding sizing fast enough. Meanwhile, upstarts like Fashion Nova and Shein were swooping in with all the sizes, prices that were possibly lower than Forever 21, and even more products to offer. And you cannot, I'm just gonna say this again, you cannot forget how essential, how smart it was that these newer ultra-fast fashion brands like Fashion Nova like Shein, were were hitting all the sizes that were inclusive sizing right out of the gate because they just made every other retailer out there look even more just antiquated and uncool because their sizes didn't go beyond extra large and it said something not good about them. When you are taking a step back and saying that Shein and Fashion Nova are taking a more ethical high road by offering sizes, that says a lot about this whole industry and how broken it has always been, right? But I gotta hand it to these companies. They have the sizes when everybody else was too fearful, fat phobic, foolish to do otherwise. And you can't help but think that, yeah, Forever 21, Zara, these brands should go the way of the dinosaurs because they can't even keep up with the real size of people, right? Ultra fast fashion really first arose as a conversation topic, as a term, in the in mid to late 2020, as Shein and Boohoo became bigger and bigger. And these brands were taking the fast fashion model and shifting it into overdrive because they could do everything faster and cheaper and in more sizes. While Forever 21 and Zara were delivering new styles to stores and their website every week, it might only be 100 styles, which when I say only there, 100 new styles per week is still 
so many new styles every week. That's more than 5,000 per year. That is still fast fashion, right? That is not how it worked in the beginning of my career. ASOS, meanwhile, entirely online, so they can have as many styles as they want because they don't have to try to merchandise them in a store. They were dropping 7,000 new items every single week, and it was mind-blowing, right? I would talk to other vendors who worked with ASOS, and they told me, remember, I'm working in fast fashion at this point, that keeping up with ASOS, satisfying their demand for new stuff was all-consuming, that some of them had actually shed a lot of other accounts so that they could focus just on getting enough new stuff for ASOS every week. I can't even fathom 7000 per week, right? That seems so over the top. But Sheehan was like, heh, hold my beer, and started launching about 6,000 new styles every single day. Now you're wondering getting the calculator here. I'm literally doing this as I record. If you're launching 6,000 new styles every single day, 365 days a year, what is that? Oh, that's just a cool 2.2 million styles per year. Wow. (laughs) I have to take a moment there because that is, I can't even think of even close, I mean, I can't even think of 6,000 ideas for products, much less 2.2 million. I mean, that is like ultra fast, right? (laughs) These ultra fast fashion brands like Shein, like Boohoo, even a lot of the other rando brands selling on Amazon now, they were able to drop this steady flow of new cheap clothes somehow even she and doing more than 2 million new styles per year because they don't have the burden of brick and mortar stores. And they have more factory direct style relationships. So they aren't working with vendors and agents like the other big brands. Remember, most retailers and brands do not own their factories and they're going through intermediaries to have things made that can slow things down and it can you know change the pricing for sure. Forever 21 did have a lot of factory relationships, not necessarily owning factories per se, but perhaps cousins of owner of the owners of the company owning the factories like that kind of thing. But they still had to ship everything to the US to their distribution centers and then off to stores, launch it on the website, all that stuff. And that slowed things down a bit. It was still really fast, but like Shein is doing it all overseas. They're not bringing it here and then getting it ready for product launch. And that does really change the time of the whole thing, right? Meanwhile, Shein could offer every micro trend or TikTok aesthetic as fast as they arose on social media. I mean, If they're going to launch 6,000 styles every day, they sure do need to buy in every whim that anyone has ever had at any moment, right? This variety of choices made Forever 21 look like like when you try to go buy clothes at Walgreens, right? And there's just like one aisle and it's mostly swim cover-ups or pajamas. Walgreens is a drugstore for any of you who are unfamiliar. Imagine trying to go buy a, a, a wardrobe there. It'd be nearly impossible, right? That's what Forever 21 was starting to look like. And all of these other retailers that were honestly serving the same audience because Shein eclipsed them all. And they offered, once again, more sizing and 
even lower prices, along with all kinds of additional discounts. Customers were encouraged to order so much at one time that they became halls of newness. And with a global pandemic limiting where we could go or what we could do, this was a perfect time. Seriously. I always say that like the fast fashion industry should be sending like an edible arrangement to Instagram world headquarters every single day because like they would not have grown the way they did without Instagram, Tumblr also. Shein and all of these other ultra fast fashion brands should be sending a edible arrangement to COVID's house every day, wherever that is, because the pandemic really helped fuel their rise. Ultra fast fashion offered us a virtually infinite array of things to buy in a very convenient way when we didn't have access to anything else. In fact, in April 2020, U.S. clothing sales plummeted by 79% from March. McKinsey predicted that global fashion industry revenues would contract by 30% in 2020. This is after a decade of just solid upward growth thanks to fast fashion. Retailers were saddled with inventory that they could not sell, forcing them to close stores and do layoffs. Why were they saddled with all this inventory? Because no one could go to the stores to buy it. And it was kind of shocking to me how many retailers were bad at executing selling online. Seriously, this had a massive impact. Meanwhile, Shein, Boohoo, Fashion Nova, all their friends, nothing changed. They could... They sold to us every single day. Nothing about what you ordered or when you could get it changed, and it didn't need to change. In fact, retailers like Boohoo and Shein, once again, who were solely based online, they actually saw growth during that time period, and they capitalized on something that we have all come to realize over the past few years. I realized it In the 2008 recession, I saw it play out as a person working in the industry then, and I saw it playing out again during the first few years of the pandemic. While people might be worrying about money or see a drop in their financial security like they did during the recession, like they have during the pandemic, people don't stop buying stuff. They keep on shopping just for less expensive stuff. And these ultra-fast fashion brands had the perfect prices. Rachel Monroe describes it best in her piece for The Atlantic titled, Ultra Fast Fashion is Eating the World. She said, the ultra fast fashion brands have designed a shopping experience that makes the consumer feel as if the clothes magically appear out of nowhere with easy purchasing and near immediate delivery. The frictionless transactions contribute to the sense that the products themselves are ephemeral, easy come, easy go. And yet, we know at our core that none of these items are truly ephemeral, right? Or more accurately, you and I know that, but we have to get others to recognize that. Because while a $20 dress or a $3 tank top might feel low value and therefore disposable, it comes at a huge price. 
worker exploitation, consumption of resources like water and fossil fuels, and its future much longer life as pollution. (sighs) Yeah. Ultra-fast fashion continues to become faster and more innovative. Temu has arrived on the scene. Maybe it's called Timu, Temu. I have no idea. But they've got prices that are lower than Shein. And people find dupes of dupes on dupes on AliExpress for even lower prices. In fact, a QVC for Gen Z has popped up on TikTok thanks to TikTok shopping, where content creators sell dropship clothing from AliExpress and Alibaba for prices that are as low or lower than Shein, with bundles, discounts, giveaways, you name it. These sellers give a small share of their revenue to TikTok, and buyers get access to lots of cheap clothing. But as a great piece from the Cambridge University student newspaper says, quote, buyers are receiving products that do not have a long lifespan, while sellers are relying on poor working conditions and harm to the environment to line their pockets. It's not a great situation, right? But I also understand the appeal of low prices and the sense of social connection that you get from shopping in a QVC-like environment on TikTok. In fact, I'm planning a future episode about home shopping because it's such a unique phenomenon in itself. Anyway, I'll share that article about sellers selling on TikTok in the show notes because it will explain this business model a lot more and how it's been working and share some examples of who's doing it. Meanwhile, Shein and all of the other ultra-fast fashion brands have have practically become shorthand for stealing from artists, designers, and small brands. I mean, if you got to launch a couple million new styles each year, you're definitely going to be stealing ideas from someone, right? And they've been getting away with it because it's hard to fight a bigger retailer when you're a small business. Furthermore, you know, customers were buying these copies without hesitation. So it's like the only the only winner is the brand stealing this stuff in the first place. In mid-July of this year, just a few weeks ago, three independent designers and artists, Krista Perry, Larissa Martinez, and Jay Barron, filed a case in California federal court against Shein and its related entities. More on that phrase later. And I'm so proud of them for making this move because it has been a long time coming. Just about every artist, designer, or brand that I admire has been knocked off by Shein over the last few years. The case involves copyright and trademark infringement by Shein, specifically citing, quote, their practice of producing, distributing, and selling exact copies of creative works, which they allege is, quote, part and parcel of Shein's design process and organizational DNA. Like I said, a case of this nature has been a long time coming because Shein is infamous for copying artists and designers and never facing repercussions for it. And social media is filled with stories of artists and designers trying to hold Shein accountable without success. The case claims that Shein uses a powerful algorithm to capture fashion trends early in the cycle, then uses its production and fulfillment infrastructure to make, quote, billions of dollars churning out new product and stealing designs and art every day. 
Sheehan generally gets away with this unethical behavior for several reasons. I mean, one is that customers seem to not really care. And that's very important. That's an important piece of this whole thing. But also, Sheehan usually orders only about 200 units of a new item. In contrast, a standard fast fashion retailer would order 1,000 to 10,000 or even more units in an initial order. In fact, Sheehan's ability to produce so few units, it really speaks to its unique factory situation because it is extremely difficult to make less than 300 units of anything. And even 300 units, in my experience, is pretty iffy because even when you're a large retailer, prices go up as the size of an order goes down, making small batches too expensive for your standard fast fashion consumer's budget. So this ability to produce in very small batches and keep pricing low, it gives Shein a major advantage because they're not taking on the liability of stuff that doesn't sell in a significant way. And they don't have to because they don't have to make that much to get things started. It's fascinating to me. Why does Shein order so little when they are copying someone else's design or art? It's because it allows them to test the legal waters. If an artist, designer, brand discovers the stolen design, Shein can settle cheaply and fast, maybe only a couple hundred dollars, very little financial risk, right? They maybe damage out or dispose of the things that haven't, they can't sell now, allegedly. They probably sell it off somewhere else. They write a small check to whoever they copied and that's it, right? They move on. Furthermore, the small quantity allows Shein to claim it was just sort of a blip in the system. This is what they do all the time. Often Shein will say that a third party partner was responsible for the mistake which allows them to avoid accountability from both the designer and its customer base. It's like, oh, sorry, things happen. But this lawsuit alleges that that's not the case at all, that it is all very intentional. As I mentioned earlier, designers and artists are generally unable to do very much about Sheehan's intellectual property theft. If the designer can afford a lawyer, and that's a big if, they might be able to negotiate a settlement. The settlement itself will be very small because Sheehan will say, oh, we only bought a couple hundred units. More often than not, nothing really happens other than Sheehan pulling the item off their website. That's it. Furthermore, if there is no pushback from the creator of the design and customers like the product, Sheehan will order many more units. And when customers buy copies and knockoffs, they're actually signaling to Sheehan to continue copying, which they will. Here's the thing. If customers didn't buy knockoffs from Sheehan, Sheehan wouldn't keep making them. That's how business works. I always say there are only two things that make these brands and retailers change their ways. One is the fear of the law, right? And two is the fear of losing sales. If something doesn't sell, they never make that kind of thing again. And that's what's happening here. People either are not knowing that they're buying copies, knockoffs, stolen art, or they are, they know that, and they're still doing it anyway. And that just 
pushes the button for Sheehan to do another round of that. Here's the thing. Often when an idea, design, or art enters the knockoff cycle via Sheehan, it's just the first stop on a long, uncontrollable chain of copies that moves through progressively less reputable brands, ultimately living on Amazon or AliExpress for years. This robs the original creator of ownership and often decreases the value of their original work. This can end their business like completely or force them to find a different direction. To be clear, stealing designs and art is not a victimless crime. It actually stifles creativity and it stomps out small business. So this lawsuit is specifically using RICO laws as its basis. The RICO Act, Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, was first used in the 1970s to take on the Hells Angels. It's off, it has been used since then to dismantle organized crime, and it was also used in the Enron and Bernie Madoff cases. The RICO Act allows authorities to take legal action against collectives and conglomerates rather than an individual or single company. While using laws that were designed to take down organized crime might seem a little, I don't know, dramatic, this is essential in holding Sheehan accountable because while it seems like a big monolithic company to its customers, it's actually a collective of shell companies, holding groups, and random seeming conglomerates based all around the world in what the case calls a, quote, Byzantine shell game of a corporate structure. This confusing structure is very intentional because it allows Sheehan to duck a lot of responsibilities. For one, legal repercussions of any type, including intellectual property theft or consumer injury. Tracking down a defendant for any lawsuit is nearly impossible. Often then, these cases cannot move forward. For example, you find lead in your Shein clothing, oh well, there's no one to hold responsible. Same thing if you discover they have stolen your art or design. Next, taxes and duties. No clear central hub in one specific country allows Shein to avoid a lot of taxes and customs. And yes, that saves them a lot of money. Furthermore, this confusing structure allows Sheehan to skirt issues of labor safety and wage theft. If it's unclear who is responsible for a factory or a product, government agencies cannot hold anyone accountable or force change. So I've heard whispers that more artists and designers are joining this lawsuit, and I'm really excited about it. This could be a major turning point in holding Sheehan accountable for a change. I'm sure just based on the complex structure of the company that there's a lot more shady stuff that we don't know anything about. And to be clear, Sheehan isn't doing you a favor by creating a cheap knockoff of something you like. They're just profiting from unethical behavior and I'm not okay with that. You know, I always say where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's tons of artists being copied and stolen from, there's also worker exploitation and probably a super toxic corporate culture and massive environmental damage. 
and so much more. Like these behaviors all go hand in hand. And when you find one, you generally find all the other ones. I'll update you as soon as I hear more on this case. I really hope that it can be the beginning of something much larger. And in our next episode, I'll be talking more about these other ultra fast fashion brands, including Timu, Temu, Temu, whatever we want to call it, and Dolls Kill, which we're going to, we're going to touch on that in our conversation today, but I want to talk a lot more about Dolls Kill in our next episode. If you're not familiar with that brand, that's okay too. You're going to learn all about it. Let's take a moment to thank this week's episode sponsor, a brand that I love and feel very honored to have supporting the show. Seriously, what a pat on my back. Oseduro is a sustainable fashion brand based in Ghana that uses handmade textile techniques to create contemporary garments. All products are hand-dyed and sewn in Ghana with small-scale artisans and manufacturers to support the local apparel industry. This is a really big deal to me because as we've all learned in our series with the Ore Foundation, fast fashion has had an extremely negative impact on the local textile industry in Ghana. So what Oseduro is doing is really important to me. And their clothing is colorful with bold prints and it's size inclusive with many styles offered in sizes extra small to 4X. They are also conscious of waste and they're always developing more programs to tackle textile waste. Plus, they collaborate with artists, designers, and other brands to bring unique and limited edition pieces. Furthermore, this is very important to me too, this is a brand that cares for its workers, priding themselves on taking full-time pay for a four-day work week. The staff enjoys three weeks of annual paid leave, 90 days of full pay maternity leave, two weeks of full pay paternity leave, full health insurance coverage, pensions, and other statutory benefits. This is unheard of in the fashion industry. You can learn more and check out all of their incredibly unique and wearable pieces. They're all going to become the best things you've ever bought and you're going to wear them the rest of your life. You can find them at oseduro.com. You can find them on Instagram at oseduro. And don't worry, I'll share all of that in the show notes. And thank you again for your support. Okay. Let's jump into my conversation with Danielle. Okay, Danielle, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, I'm Danielle Vermeer, and I am obsessed with solving customer problems at this intersection of fashion, tech, and resale. I've been an avid thrifter my entire life, and I'm now going on 12 years of buying no new clothes. So only thrifted, secondhand, vintage, swapped, made by myself, all of that. So I have a deep interest and passion for sustainability and secondhand fashion and making it 10 times easier for consumers, especially younger consumers interested in fashion Mm -hmm. to shop secondhand first. I'm the co-founder of a new fashion tech startup called Teleport, which is a thrifting app where you can buy and sell directly from outfit videos. So think of it like if TikTok and Depop had a baby. And I previously led resale and circular fashion at Amazon Fashion, where I built and launched our first luxury resale program from the ground up. I mean, I'm sure you have tons of Amazon stories, but that would be another episode. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> many, many stories. No doubt. No doubt. Um, yeah, I'm excited for us to talk about Teleport, which we'll get to later, because I can't believe how many people are selling really, I mean, lack, for lack of a better adjective, really shitty fast fashion on TikTok right now. And like, as far as I can tell, making a lot of money. Absolutely. I think people are addicted and enthralled with whole culture, seeing Mm -hmm. these huge bags of clothes, whether it's fast fashion or honestly from the thrift store. Mm -hmm. It's very voyeuristic in a way, but I think it's a form of entertainment that's been habituated through social media of living through that dopamine hit, even if you're not actually the one with the haul. Yeah, it's interesting. It's such a a cycle, sort of. Like, you can be the person who bought the haul and get that satisfaction of the, the dopamine rush of buying a lot of stuff all at once. Then you get the second rush of posting it online and getting other people's approval. Then you, as the viewer, can see it and get the dopamine rush of seeing someone else buying so much stuff. But then it can also lead you to go buy your own haul of stuff so you can be part of that cycle too, right? And I was thinking about this the other day because, you know, obviously we see a lot of haul videos on social media, but even on Reddit and Facebook, there are a lot of groups and subreddits that are specifically for people who really love one brand, whether it's like, you know, Glossier or as broad as Sephora or other cosmetics brands and then skincare and then, you know, like Selkie or other brands. And people just will post photos of their hauls like every day, whether it's, I mean, people be like, look at my Ulta haul, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it just, it's, it's wild to me. And like all the conversation that comes like in a time where it can be really hard to feel good sometimes. Uh, I see the appeal of posting a photo of all the stuff you just bought and and people mm-hmm. applauding you. you know? I do think there's a difference between hull culture and mm-hmm. being a collector and being a part of a collector culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think where if you think about kind of the access on one end, uh, a consumer consumption-driven mindset, Mm-hmm. And then the other side, more of a collector mindset. And so collector could be of anything. It could be of Pokemon cards, of Barbie mm-hmm. dolls, of uh, very specific niche designer brands or Glossier makeup. It could be high and low, left and right, anything. But I think where the difference lies is what is that mindset? Is it mm-hmm. to accumulate for the sake of buying that dopamine hit to own that item and then probably get rid of it? Or is it more of that collector mindset where you just genuinely have a love, a deep interest of whatever that niche is, and you enjoy those products. You enjoy displaying them in your home, uh, telling other people about it, being in kind of collector online in real life communities. And it's more part of that identity Mm -hmm. rather than just showing off the stuff that you have. (laughs) I think that's true. And I think the identity piece of it is really fascinating to say like, oh, a key part of my identity is that I buy everything Glossier makes, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. it is, it's also a reflection of our culture. And like, it's kind of like we live in this brand led culture right now. Absolutely. And I mean, on TikTok, thrift hauls are super popular. Mm. Shein hauls, other fast fashion hauls are astronomically popular. I think the last time I checked, the hashtag Shein haul had over 12 billion views. Oh, and oh. in contrast, 
thrift halls have about three and a half billion. So still an amazing number of people who are viewing, engaging, sharing with that content. And it definitely gets to this point of what is this for? Who is this for? Because it's, it's striking a chord, but what is happening beneath the surface Mm -hmm. that we are addicted in a way to these halls, which leads to not just viewing. We know it leads to more consumption, more wastefulness in a lot of ways, because when you're buying so much more than you could possibly use, if you're buying 50 items every few months from a Shein, even if you wore each of those items every day, you're still not going to go through all of it. And so it really is like, what is happening here? What is driving this? What's underneath the surface Mm -hmm. that is causing this overconsumption? Yeah. I, I, it's interesting to think about Shein. Have you ever bought anything from Shein? I'm guessing no. I've never purchased anything new mm-hmm. from Shein, but I've had a few pieces from clothing swaps mm-hmm. that were from Shein. And then even on resale platforms, I see it all over the place now. <sighs> me too. In thrift stores. Oh. Honestly, so many local thrift stores by me are just being overridden by Shein and other fast fashion brands on the racks, which is really disappointing. It is. Because I'll get excited. I'll be like, oh, this is cute. And I'll pull it off. I'm like, damn it, it's Shein. (laughs) Every time I go thrifting, this is the story. Absolutely. And I feel like it happened very, very fast. Where for a while, every time I I saw something cute, I'd pull out and be at Old Navy and I'd be really puzzled for a moment. I'd be like, dang you, Old Navy, for sometimes copying vintage things or whatever. And then we were talking about Shein a lot in 2020, and then suddenly it moved into the racks. And now it's more and more Shein every time I go, which really speaks to how fast this product comes in and out of people's lives when they buy it. So something that has puzzled me about Shein, because I have not bought anything directly from them either, but I have bought stuff secondhand, is uh, I'm assuming based on just spending time on their website, that there are a lot of buttons that it pushes in your brain as a consumer that motivates you or incentivizes you to buy a lot at once. To not just say, oh, I just came here for two pairs of pants and to leave, but to add more stuff. Because anytime I see a haul video, it's so much stuff. It is so much stuff that one person bought at one time. And I know that is more than norm. And so I'm assuming it it motivates customers probably, you know, via like discounts and free shipping thresholds and all that stuff to buy a lot. There's definitely those standards of dark patterns or just regular e-commerce incentives where you mentioned free shipping, bundles, Mm -hmm. discounts. I think the incredibly low prices are almost hard to believe, (laughs) especially if you've been on the other side. And you know what goes into clothing manufacturing. You know what it costs to create a garment, let alone a higher quality, more durable garment. Mm -hmm. It's really unfathomable to see a dress for $4.50. Like what? Like what, what is happening? Does anyone else look at this and think this is not possible without something else happening? Right. And I think the idea of buying 50 items for... $200. And so you're getting these items at an each price for very, very low Mm -hmm. is super alluring because you can also do that at the thrift store. You can get Mm -hmm. 50 items Mm -hmm. for $200. But I think the overall objective quality is likely to be higher if you're buying secondhand, Mm -hmm. especially if those items have been made 
before, you know, 10, 15 years ago, before quality of manufacturing clothing has really declined. But it's this allure of buy, 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 and look at these great deals you're getting. I think the merchandising is also, to be honest, very smart Mm -hmm. because the business model is looking at what's trending, what's up and coming, what are people connecting with, engaging with on social media and creating these smaller batches of products that are at the tip of that trend. And so if you are looking for the ability to activate that trend in your own style, your own closet, Mm -hmm. but for a fraction of the price, it's going to serve that up in a very palatable way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely. I mean, even I was just looking at, you know, the words that uh, Sheen is clearly paying a lot of money for on, on Google shopping. And I was like, wow, they're so smart. Like, I couldn't find one phrase that I felt was popular at this point that uh, Sheen wasn't pulling into the top 10 search results. I mean, they are using data to steer customers mm-hmm. to buy stuff. I it's It's very smart, except for the part for how it, like, is it totally sucks. And uh, to be blunt. Um, but I mm-hmm. do like, I try to get into a headspace when I think about Shein and people, the popularity of Shein and how hard it is for to break people's that habit, which we're going to talk about at length today. And because I've never been a Shein customer, I have to go back in the mental archives to when I used to go to Forever 21 every week. And it was a similar thing where I couldn't believe how cheap the clothes were. And there was also like this acknowledgement when you shop there that anything you bought wasn't going to last very long. But if you got one full night out in an outfit, well, then you got your money's worth because it wasn't made to last and everybody knew that and it was okay because it was about this idea of more and more, lots of stuff, lots of newness, very little repeat. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is like the dawn of like, the Instagram era, you know, where we're just like, we have to wear lots of new stuff all the time. And back then, I will say, like, the information that was available around who made these clothes, uh, why these clothes being so cheap was a problem, that that didn't really exist in a large-scale way. And so many customers were just, they were operating blindly. But now we live in a time where this stuff is so much more apparent We know now more than ever the impact of these low, low prices on humans. We know the impact of this overconsumption on the planet. And yet, Shein just keeps growing and growing. And to me, there's always this disconnect, which is what we're going to talk about today. Gen Z cares about these issues. Gen Z is supposed to be the most woke generation ever, you know, like a, a refreshing update to all us millennials who basically are the fast fashion generation. And yet Gen Z is fueling Shein and probably all these other, like, how do you say it? Temu, Temu, like Timu. and AliExpress, you know, and dupes that you can buy from all of these rando places all over the internet, uh, shopping even weirder fast fashion on TikTok. I mean, that is being fueled by Gen Z. Yes, there are millennials, there are Gen Xers, there might even be boomers buying this stuff. But for the most part, these sales are being driven by younger people. So I don't know if we're going to have an answer today, but I would like us to try to figure out why why is Gen Z doing that? <laughs> it is It is a question I have been pondering, researching, 
talking with many Gen Zers since that is the target audience and the main percentage of our customer base or community on teleport Mm -hmm. of what is driving this paradox of Gen Z saying that they care about sustainability. They're really interested in thrifting. They love the Depops and Poshmarks of the world. And yet they are driving fast fashion purchases on Shein, on Timu, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. A lot also then accelerated by social media. Mm -hmm. So what's happening here? How can you have this paradox of holding both at the same time? And in digging into it and many conversations and social listening into different communities about this, the conclusion that I've come to is it's a both and. At the end of the day, Gen Z wants cute clothes that are on trend at very affordable prices. And you can either do that by buying fast fashion or you can do that by thrifting. And some aspects are easier than others, which is why they can be both. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it comes down to on-trend, affordable clothes. So how do we help more consumers make that shift to secondhand is what I am utterly obsessed with. Because I do think there will be a tipping point, an aha moment, if we can introduce more younger consumers to secondhand quality fashion, mm-hmm. where they will realize, oh my goodness, like real leather or this handmade quality garment that's vintage, that's lasted already 40 years, it's going to last another 40 years. And it's super unique. It's more sustainable. They feel really good about where they're putting their dollar. Mm -hmm. But understanding that the secondhand shopping experience, whether in real life or online, is not as easy and it's not as fun as buying new. And that's a big problem Mm -hmm. that we need to solve. Yeah, agreed. I think that that is a big part of the problem. And when we talk about millennials still continuing to shop fast fashion, which plenty of millennials still are, it is sort of similar in that it's like, oh, I want to do the right thing, but convenience and price kind of trump everything else, you know? Yes. And I'm coming from Amazon fashion. So I all I know, so you, all know about, you know, you <laughs> know, <laughs> all about the customer appetite and demand at this point for convenience and low prices and having a vast assortment mm-hmm. of products, brands to choose from to really have a place that can cater to every single style, every single body shape price point. Mm-hmm. I think what's so interesting about Gen Z is in contrast to millennials, they are living their lives more online and feel more like themselves online than any other mm-hmm. generation. So I came across some research by Ogilvy and they basically found that Gen Z, almost half of them say that they feel more like themselves online than in real life. Wow. And that is different than millennials, uh, Gen, Gen X, boomers. You know, For example, boomers, 75% say, of course they feel more like themselves in real life. And less than 10% say they feel like them themselves more online. And I think it really gets to this, this changing of the guard in that when you can unlock mm-hmm. niche online communities, you can train your algorithm to show you your very specific special interests and what is interesting or alluring to you. You can open up your world beyond just your physical one. Mm-hmm. And when you're growing up with that, like you're two years old and you've got an iPad, you know how it works, which is how most Gen Z have been at this point. Yeah. Then it's just a very different mindset and experience 
where you're discovering new products, you're discovering new communities, you're shopping more online than in person, in physical environments. And that changes your mindset. And I, I'm, I'm positive it changes your brain chemistry too. And just in terms of the dopamine, the kind of development of your sense of self and identity, it's just a very different world than even I as a millennial grew up in. And I had internet access as a young kid and still don't feel as digitally native as my Gen Z cousins, nieces, nephews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think you are right about something where like buying, shopping online does kind of change your brain chemistry and what shopping is for your brain. Um, Thinking about like when you have to go shop in real life, it's such a slower process and the dopamine hits don't come as fast fast or as easily because you might go into the fitting room with 20 things and try it on and walk out with nothing but feel like just monumentally depressed. I've had those shopping (laughs) experiences, right? And when you shop online, that part just comes later. (laughs) Exactly. After the excitement of shopping. (laughs) I think online too, something that Shein and others honestly do get right is they are serving up the most idealized, perfect looking view, like the Instagram ready view Mm -hmm. of that item. Yeah. And a lot of it is crazy Photoshopped and not realistic, (laughs) but it's selling you something. It's selling you, if you buy this bodycon dress, you're going to look like this hourglass shape, Mm -hmm. even if you don't actually have an hourglass shape. And it's telling that story for you versus when you are at a physical store or you're at the thrift store, mm-hmm. you have to do a lot of that imagining for yourself. And that is a skill that I think if you have not been doing this for a long time is not as developed as it yeah. being served on a platter for you yeah. online, because no one looks like that in real life without a ton of filters <laughs> and other work done. But it feels like if I buy this dress for $7, somehow I will unlock a piece of that. That's what they're being sold. Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I will say Shein has come a long way because when it first launched, half of their photography was like stolen from other sites and it looked very Mm -hmm. unreliable. And now it is so polished, but in a, it feels real. It feels disturbingly real, you know, and you're like, oh, that definitely is how that garment looks on that person for sure. Right. And then I'm, I have Mm -hmm. no doubt. I remember it was very common, like a few years ago for people to buy something from Shein and post a hilarious photo of what it looked like IRL (laughs) versus the photo. Right. Um, but you don't see that happening in the same way anymore. And the photos are even more like just on point. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do a lot of things well. (laughs) Exactly. And it's tapping into this Instagram culture of looking pixel perfect, of always having a new outfit. And I came across this stat a year or so ago that really was shocking to me, and I have not been able to get it out of my head. And it found that one in seven fashion shoppers in the U.S. thinks that it's a faux pas to be photographed in the same item more than (sighs) once. So this idea that, oh, I have this beautiful dress, I wore it to a friend's wedding, but because I had photos and I put them on Instagram, or I did an OOTD on TikTok with that dress, I can never show my face in it again. I can never wear it and be photographed again. And that was like, whoa, 
that is a different perspective on the role of clothes in a Mm -hmm. social media first experience in a more digitally native experience, because then the clothes are not really meant to be held onto. You're not intending to keep them for very long. And that's where I think for Gen Z, more than 80% of them consider the resale value of an item before they purchase it because they're expecting at some point to pass it on, hopefully in a responsible way, reselling it, swapping it, upcycling it, maybe donating it, anything but trashing it is, is the goal. But that over 80% are factoring that in mm-hmm. before buying. I mean, and to me, okay, that's like a silver lining. But of course, when we, when we dig down into it, there's still a major impact of that overconsumption even if someone else wears it again. You know, we've got all the shipping and movement around and just the fact that all those clothes that nobody really needed were made in the first place. I do feel glad that secondhand shopping is normalized and reselling your clothes is normalized. Like that to me is a huge leap forward. But I do notice just just based on some of the Facebook groups I belong to for specific brands, uh, that people really use resale as a way of sort of uh, maintaining their cash flow at this point so that they can buy more stuff, you know? Cash flow. And I think in some ways it's treated as a medium to long-term rental. Yeah. So in rental fashion, you know this, you often get it for a specific event, mm-hmm. a wedding, other event, and you have it for a shorter period of time, a few days, a week, maybe two weeks. But with this resale mindset, a lot of it is, okay, I'm going to buy it. Maybe I'll wear it a few times. And there's less of an attachment to that specific item and how to mix and match it, how to really make it last in your wardrobe and style, mm-hmm. because you know, you can probably easily sell it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not going to get 80 plus percent of what you paid for it, but you know, you can recoup some of the costs when you're ready to pass it on and more and more sites make it super easy to just out of, get it out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the thread up clean out bags or four days bags come in, donating comes in where it's just, it's not here anymore. It went to somewhere else and I feel pretty good about it just being gone. Even if I'm going to get pennies on the dollar right. for the resale. Right. Yeah. I think it it is a, a lot like rental. Um, the company I worked for before the pandemic was really trying to make focus on renting day-to-day clothing. Um, so it was a lot of fast fashion, actually, that we were buying and people were renting. And, um, you know, the primary, I mean, there were a lot of issues we ran into there, but one was that sometimes or no, often the clothes wouldn't survive another rental. Mm-hmm. Um, we would mm-hmm. send stuff out to people for a month and then they could swap their bag and get a new bag or they could pay extra to swap that bag sooner. And we had a lot of people who would swap after two weeks, but a lot of the clothes were coming back in a state that like they couldn't survive another wash, another rental. Um, and that was sort of like, I don't know, the Achilles heel of that model. I'm sure they're still trying to figure it out, but that there were certain brands, which I won't name here, but we couldn't even rent them out more than once. Like they would just be damaged immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. And these are brands that people know that are very desirable that I see uh, focused very heavily on Poshmark and all the other resale mm-hmm. platforms. And I'm like, oh man, how did that person, when I see someone selling something from like 
those brands on Poshmark. I'm like, how did they get it to last to resell it? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I do, I do think you're right that a lot of people are viewing this as like, it's a temporary thing in and out of your life. And, you know, once again, it's great that it's going to go to another home rather than like with millennials where you would buy this stuff at Forever 21, knowing that it wasn't going to last very long. When you were done with it, you would just drop it off at the Goodwill or throw it in the trash. So that is an improvement, but it's sort of like we haven't, we haven't like fixed the core behavioral issue, right? And the core behavioral issue I have a lot of empathy for is when you're young and your body's changing, you're trying to figure out your personal style. You don't have a ton of disposable income yet. I just have great empathy for those people, most of whom are young women, mm-hmm. preteen, teen, college age girls. And if you love fashion, you're kind of in a tough spot because you can't buy investment pieces. You either don't have the funds or you don't really know if that's what you want to put your money into, like putting all of your eggs in that basket. Mm-hmm. And so I think when it comes down to micro trends and the role of fast fashion and kind of the churn that goes through Gen Z's closets. I just have a lot of empathy for that because I do think that experimenting with your personal style is the only way to really cultivate it. And that takes time. It takes energy. It takes money. And I would rather they try to do that through secondhand pieces than new items. Mm -hmm. But I'm also more of a realist when it comes to sustainable fashion. Oh, yeah. Because I think (laughs) shaping people I've seen, especially on the internet, is not a sustainable way to shift mindset. It's just a way to have people dig in their heels and become very defensive. Yes, I've read thousands of comments and engagements online from Shein shoppers, and they are legitimately the most defensive and vocal about their shopping behaviors more than any other fast fashion brand forever 21 asos zara it's when it comes down to shein shoppers are consistently the most defensive and engaged online and it's really getting to this when fashion is a part of your self-expression and identity Mm -hmm. and social media you feel that pressure to keep up Mm -hmm. and to be on trend and to have the right look and to be a part of that kind of status and group. Mm-hmm. I just have empathy for it, even if I don't necessarily think it's the right thing to do. Oh, totally. I think there is so much pressure to wear something new all the time, to always be trendy or ahead of it. I mean, even all the years I worked in the fashion industry, I felt this extreme pressure to always wear something new and always have it be cooler than what anybody else was wearing. It was like my job depended on it. And when you are younger, it's like your place in society feels like it depends on it, you know? Oh my gosh. So it's like... I resonate with that. Right, right. And so like, (laughs) that's why I am like, I totally get it. I... I do, I think I agree with you that like the people defending Shein are perhaps the most passionate and I understand why. And I also will say that if Shein had been around when I was in my 20s, I absolutely would have been buying from Shein all the time. 
Like, to be clear, mm-hmm. 100%. That's why I was buying Forever 21 clothes. I didn't have a lot of money, but I certainly felt that pressure to always wear something new and look cool. You know, that's how I was going to meet friends or fit in or date people or whatever I thought was going to happen. But I felt, it's not even like I thought anything was going to happen, but I felt like I had to do it to exist in the world, you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, how many times did I beg my parents or use my allowance babysitting money to go buy what I now look back at Abercrombie (laughs) as atrocious decisions? Like why was the zipper length on these low, low rise jeans literally like three quarters of an inch? Why did it even need a zipper? It, what was it zipping up? Oh my God, you're we giving me. Our... Okay, I'm like shuddering over here. I remember <laughs> these jeans way too well and how I don't know, like I would ride my bike in those ultra low rise jeans. How? How? Do you That's do impressive. That? I know. <laughs> I'm so... I don't know. In the Y2K resurgence that I'm seeing among Gen Z younger shoppers is so fascinating. It's so fun. And also like flabbergasting. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I lived through it. You know, I have the receipts. I made a few videos on TikTok showing my actual videos from when I was a teenager wearing these outfits. Uh-huh. And it's like very similar to what they want to wear now, which if they can thrift it, all power to them. Yeah. But what I find is so interesting of wanting to buy fast fashion that's Y2K-esque when I'm like, there's millions of real Y2K clothes out there. Uh-huh. How do we unlock that access? Because these items are also way better quality mm-hmm. and still pretty affordable compared to anything new that you're going to find now. I mean, it's true. Say what you will about those Abercrombie jeans and they're like two-inch zipper or whatever. That was really nice denim. Like, it lasted, Mm -hmm. right? And I do think, like, you know, the Y2K era was sort of the last time in the century where clothes were pretty well made and accessible financially. And we definitely saw that, I mean, completely change in 2008. And I still think about, like, for example, one that comes up to me a lot is Delia's because, you know, when I was a teenager, Delia's was, like, the coolest place that you could buy clothes and they were expensive, but they were really mm-hmm. nice when you got them. And people, I still know people who have their Delia's clothes from high school. But a few years ago, Dolls Kill bought the license for Delia's and started making their own stuff. And at first I was like, okay, well, I hate Dolls Kill, but I do love Delia's. So I ordered some stuff and it was hot garbage. Like it was defective oh, before so I even wore it. I know. It was like crappy zippers that don't zip up and down and like really bad, a really terrible bag that I just shouldn't exist. And everything was just, it it had that like air of disposability, but not necessarily the price point. And Mm -hmm. I took a step back and I realized like, okay, well, sure. These pants were also $48 in like 1997, but now they should be more like a hundred dollars and they're still selling them at like 48 or 68 or something. Um, I was like, this is like such a clear illustration of how clothing has changed in my lifetime alone. And also, fun fact that I've been learning recently on Reddit is Dolls Kill really squashes resale of their products. They do. Yes. Wild. There's a lot of talk in reseller forums on Reddit and elsewhere about resellers' accounts potentially being banned mm-hmm. or at least warned if they are trying to post Dolls Kill. And What's so interesting is there's this concept of the first doctrine Mm -hmm. policy 
in law when it comes to resale. Okay. That at least in the US, if you are the brand owner, you can't tell someone who has purchased your item and later resold it that they can't do that unless there has been material and substantial kind of breach Mm -hmm. of that original brand IP and ownership. So this is where a lot of brands, especially luxury brands, try to find loopholes because many of them are very uncomfortable still with having their products be resold in secondhand channels. They don't want to own it. They don't want to participate in it, but they also want to <laughs> kind of ignore that it exists. Right. So these are, you know, you can think of some top luxury brands that are very litigious when it comes to resale, authentication, uh, and those secondhand channels. But Dolls Kill is really interesting because I think they're they're going after more of the IP side. Mm, and so yeah. I can understand if people are reusing original product photography from their website, then yes, you shouldn't do that. But I think that goes beyond that in a lot of cases. So I've been watching this. It's super interesting to see what their end game is because this policy has been litigated time and time again. And even the Chanel's have lost and they have, I'm sure, a lot bigger budget than Dolls Kill. <laughs> I would assume. Yeah, it's interesting to me, specifically Dolls Kill, because the difference between Dolls Kill and Chanel, I mean, there is there are numerous differences. But one is that, like, whether Dolls Kill wants to believe it or not, they really operate as a fast fashion brand. That's what they're selling. And they are really trying to sell in volume a lot of stuff that is not meant to be worn for extended periods of time, right? It is like mm-hmm. very much mm-hmm. the definition of novelty outfits that you wear for one specific event. So it's kind of like just let people resell it, you know, because I think that they're going to bring the money they make reselling it back to your website and buy from you again. I think if they launched a branded resale program, it would be a different story, which to my knowledge, I don't think that they have. Mm -hmm. A lot of other brands are doing this now. So they're partnering with the Recurates or Treats Mm -hmm. or Archives, which are these new startups providing resale as a service infrastructure Mm -hmm. to support these branded resale programs. I think if that were an avenue, it would make more sense where they really wanted to consolidate, have a more consistent brand experience for resale secondhand. But the goal of just saying like, you can't do this, which essentially means these items are destined for landfill is also not a good look. It is not a good look. I don't really don't understand what the end game is here. They could be spinning this in a much more positive PR light, Mm -hmm. but they're not. Yeah, I think it is a very bad look. I would assume at this point that the majority of their customer base is, you know, Gen Z and younger millennials who care about resale and do care about sustainability issues. And so it's, I I will also just preface this by saying, like, I recognize that perhaps Dolls Kill doesn't really care about things being a good or a bad look based on multiple things that have happened over the past few years with them. But it is, it is a strange thing to stick to. I guess I'm just like, it's, it's, it is a very strange decision. I, I definitely went down a uh, Reddit rabbit hole about this last week because I just was like, (laughs) I can't believe this. Like this must be a mistake because why would they do this? This is such a bad look, you know? It's giving early 2010s when the Poshmarks and Depops and ThreadUps of the world started popping up or kind of, I call it like resale 2.0. Because in 1.0, it was the Ebays and Craigslist of the world, which proved out that people would buy used stuff 
from strangers on the internet, <laughs> which now, now we look back, we're like, of course, it's totally normal. But 20 years ago, it was not. Yeah. It, it was <laughs> hyper local. It was very inefficient, like classified ads. I'm sure Gen Z was like, what the hell is that? So <laughs> it's evolved tremendously over the last 10 to 20 years, where I think we're getting more to a, a resale 3.0 where brands are finally coming around wanting to get more involved because they can see resale is in demand among Gen Z, among millennials who are coming more into spending power, who care about sustainability, who also want to shop more affordably. And if you can do it in a more branded experience where there's less risk or perceived risk, that's a win-win for multiple players. Yeah. But not all brands are on board yet. I think what uh, the research from ThreadUp and their annual resale report and others are basically saying now most brands realize they have to get into it. It's just a matter of how exactly and in what shape and form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it'll, interesting, it'll be interesting to see what plays out with Dolls Kill because I think this conversation has been just picking up momentum. Uh, and I could see them kind of being forced to change their stance on that very, very soon. Mm-hmm. I hope. I I was, like I said, I, I, I read all these posts on Reddit and I was like, someone must be confused because <laughs> why would Dolls Kill do that? Anyway, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's so weird. I really don't. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. 
Slow Down NOLA only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. What's so interesting about newer brands too is 
the realization that most clothes now, especially most clothes that Gen Z has access to are made of polyester Mm -hmm. and other relatively lower quality materials. And so I got kind of some pushback on Twitter a few months ago when I had this tweet that went viral where I basically said that Gen Z doesn't even know what quality fashion looks or feels like. And I explained, explained the why of it Uh and saying, this is not a, this is not a blame game. These are just the facts. Yeah. It's around accessibility and price point, size inclusivity, especially of many brands that are not size inclusive. It's around dupe culture and whole culture. But it also is around the fact that most clothes, 60 plus percent made now, are polyester or polyester blend. And so many younger consumers literally don't own anything that is not in part made of polyester. Like they've never felt or owned or worn clothes made of real silk, cotton, leather, linen. Like I saw this at Amazon where I was working on a brand and product development and uh, the brand managers were working on this linen product, these beautiful linen pants for summer. And all of these customer reviews were coming in like, it's so wrinkly. Why is it so wrinkly? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, they, they don't realize that like that's linen, like linen is going to wrinkle and it's not going to be (laughs) the type of like stretchy, unwrinkly material that polyester is. And so it's kind of eye-opening of how much education and terminology needs to be Mm -hmm. learned. But if more than half of what you have access to of what is being made doesn't include any of that and you don't have exposure to it, how else are you going to learn about it other than through mostly secondhand and vintage? Yeah. I, it's so funny that you would bring up linen because I was in a, in an Instagram group for a brand where uh, the brand itself had said like, listen, we're trying to move away from rayon because of the environmental and human impact of rayon productions. We're shifting into linen and they were very excited about it. I was personally excited about it. And people were like, how do we get them to stop making linen? It's like so wrinkly and it's not as soft as rayon. (laughs) It doesn't drape the same way. And I was like, oh my God, we have all been ruined. Like I remember the moment in my career where we started to shift into synthetics and we really thought it was going to be a temporary thing until the economy, it was totally a, a, you know, a, a result of the recession. And we really thought that we would move away from that when the recession ended because customers wouldn't really like it, you know, and that they would want the nice fabrics back as their mm-hmm. finances improved. But no one cared. People were like, yeah, whatever. Like they didn't know, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. polyester production has gotten really, really smart in terms of like how deceptive it can be and the different hand feels and textures and weights. And, you know, before you know it, you go into a store and everything is polyester. So I do think that you're right. I can't imagine being 22 years old, growing up only in this century and only knowing synthetic fabrics at this point. It's pretty wild. That's right. It's wild. That's right. And that's why I think terms that are like vegan leather, are so confusing to many younger consumers because there's also been this wave of kind of organic, vegan, greenwashing of it sounds better for you and it sounds more sustainable. But in reality, vegan leather in a lot of ways is suboptimal because it's basically plastic. Mm -hmm. It's typically polyurethane. 
And it's definitely not as durable. It's not going to last 50 years like a real leather jacket will because leather is from an animal. It has been processed and tanned and treated to last like forever, at least 100 years potentially Mm -hmm. for a quality leather jacket. But if you're used to a $20 vegan leather item from a fast fashion brand, and then you have to buy a $50 leather jacket, like you're going to choose the $20 one because you also don't understand the durability and quality difference. And you definitely can't tell that necessarily online, especially if you're only going to wear that item for one Instagram photo. Yeah. Yeah. The quality doesn't matter. The longevity doesn't matter. And that's, that's, that's also just like the cultural moment that we live in right now is everything feels ephemeral. It's just about today. Yes. Um, okay. So well, let's, let's talk about what, what does Gen Z care about? Like what are their priorities? Yeah. So Gen Z, and just to kind of give more context on that, Gen Z born between around 1996 to 2012. So a lot of people think, oh, Gen Z are just like 12 year olds on the internet. Nope, they're adults now. <laughs> the oldest Gen Zers will turn 30 in three years. So in 2026, Whoa, they will be 30. Wow. And they will be coming into more spending power, into more of owning and building their careers. And they're about 20% of the US population, about a quarter of the global population. And many of them have been coming of age. You think about the last few years of COVID time, of significant uncertainty, instability, chaos, uh, potential recession, you know, just a lot of change Mm -hmm. and rapid change. Well, at the same time, living their lives online, being those digital natives, having access to fast fashion more than ever. And so there's this paradox again, that we come back to of caring about sustainability, about spending on brands that share their values their purposes, their mission, but also having limited spending power currently. And so there's this mm-hmm. trade-off that I find so interesting where it's kind of split down the middle. When Business of Fashion did research on Gen Z fashion shoppers, they've basically found half and half. 40% had a very unfav- unfavorable or unfavorable view of fast fashion. And the other 40% had a very favorable favorable view of fast fashion. And it gets again to that point of it's like this love-hate relationship where I want to be supporting more sustainable, more secondhand options, but I feel this allure, this pressure, especially from social media to keep up, to look a certain way, to buy a certain way. And so what do you do? And I think that's where Mm -hmm. I, again, am really focused on of making the resale experience, the thrifting online experience be 10 times better because Mm -hmm. it's not good. Like, like to be very fair, it's (laughs) not good. It's definitely not good enough to make it the first choice among consumers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, some platforms are better than others, but we have so far to go to have the ease and availability, the assortment that someone like Shein has on one website. That's right. And right now it's so, you have to look everywhere right now. What another interesting point is for Gen Zers, the research is showing they have less 
qualms around buying dupes or fake items. Mm. And I remember, you know, growing up in early 2000s and really caring more about fashion, what brands were cool and in that, like, if you had a fake Kate Spade bag, you would feel a bit ashamed of that compared mm-hmm. to other people who had the real thing or a real coach bag or, you know, a real Tiffany's charm bracelet versus like the dupe, mm-hmm. which we just called fake back then. <laughs> it wasn't, didn't sound as cool <laughs> yep. as dupe. Yeah. We didn't have the cool word of dupe back then. <laughs> but what we see now for Gen Z, more than half say it's morally acceptable to buy, buy fake goods, fake luxury goods, even over a third say that they would wear a fake item, a dupe. And it's very accessible where fast fashion brands definitely rip off directly indie designers, other mm-hmm. high-end designers, but they also create lookalike products that are substitutes enough to have the general vibe of whatever mm-hmm. it's knocking off. So it gets to this point too, of you don't have to actually save up to access that coveted more expensive item. You can find the dupe and there's hundreds, thousands of accounts on TikTok you can find easily that are all dedicated to finding this Aritzia dupe, this Bottega dupe, whatever dupe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's so true. And I do think uh, Shein and AliExpress and all these other platforms have really made it easier to access these dupes because, you know, I will tell you being a buyer in fast fashion for my entire career, like... We were copying stuff constantly, but there was so much fear of legal ramifications Mm. that it always had to be changed just a little bit, right? Or we couldn't quite hit it by making enough changes to make it like not a legal issue. Uh, Sometimes those those styles would just fall apart, you know, or or we would make enough changes, but they wouldn't resonate with the customer in the same way. And so it was very difficult because of the fear of being taken to court or at least getting a cease and desist and having to destroy all that inventory. But, you know, Shein and these other platforms, they operate in this legal gray area where they can directly copy something and nothing is really going to happen. You know, like, of course, we just had a lawsuit filed, was it last week, uh, that could be the beginning of that, sh- of a shift. But I, I don't, I don't know because, you know, she in itself even, you know, they'll, they know that they're copying things. So they'll just make a couple hundred units and see mm-hmm. what happens. Do people buy it? Do they have to pull it? And no big deal if they do, because it was such a small order. Um, if people buy it and they don't get called out, they will make 20 more iterations. And so I often, a lot of the haul videos that I see are hauls of dupes by of a specific yeah. brand. You know, it, like it's not uncommon to see someone buy six dupes of like a Selkie dress from AliExpress um, and show them all. And they are all different from the original, but not in a like, oh, we're changing it for legal purposes, more in a like, this is what we can make at that price point, you know? Yeah. And they're all also tiny. That's the other thing is they're all really tiny. (laughs) (laughs) I think that a lot of it comes from a misunderstanding of how much clothes should cost. And millennials, Gen Z, we have been trained from fast fashion that clothes should be incredibly low prices, like single digit dollars for a dress, for a whole outfit potentially. 
And a lot of that has warped our expectation then and acceptance of mid-tier premium luxury brands charging a lot more for that. And I saw this recently, this example where an artisan on TikTok creates these incredibly delicate hand beaded bags. So these tiny glass beads that she spends like 20 plus hours on per bag, constructing a beautiful mosaic of faces. So you can think about almost like someone painting the different shades and shadows of a human face on a canvas. She's doing that with tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny glass beads one at a time, like really a work of art. And the bags cost several thousand dollars, like equivalent to a luxury handbag. And people immediately in the comments Mm -hmm. were like, this is too much money. This is a ripoff. Where can I find the dupe? And I feel for these artisans because I think they really treat it more as art first than as just Mm -hmm. a consumable Mm -hmm. fashion item. But of course, people are enthralled with it. It's beautiful. It's unique. And they want access to it. And they're not used to being told no, (laughs) that they can't find some (laughs) cheaper dupe when it's probably only a matter of time that that style gets knocked off by a fast fashion brand. Mm -hmm. But it's this expectation of no way am I going to spend $50 for XYZ item. I want to spend $5 for that item. And you can probably find that through fast fashion. But I, my hypothesis mm-hmm. is you could probably find something equally on style, on trend, in higher quality if you can get it secondhand. It's just the fragmented yeah. supply, the lack of tooling and higher and, and the better experience of shopping secondhand online mm-hmm. is really a barrier mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. It's just so much time. And I mean, like if I am looking for specific, I need something specific. I have to go and look like five different platforms. That's right. I you think know? The, <laughs> that is part of it too, where, uh, you know, from my time at Amazon, learned that for most online e-commerce sites, it is still primarily search driven. You have a specific idea in mind, or maybe a brand product that you're specifically looking for. We call it spearfishing. But for fashion, a lot of it is more emotionally driven, browse driven purchasing. And so you are in more of a discovery mindset, unless you have that specific item in mind. But if you are young, you're figuring out your style, maybe you're shopping for an event, but you kind of need to narrow that down, you're going to be more in a browse driven expectation. And Mm -hmm. most sites are not currently prepared for that. I would say Shein and others are getting more to that because they understand that you're not searching for a puff sleeved empire waist A-line dress, like a selfie dress. You're searching Mm -hmm. for a coquette Lana Del Rey core dress. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they do nail it there too. Also, all of these platforms, resale platforms, just have the worst search anyway. Uh, and it's so frustrating in the first place, but then, yeah, like that they don't really understand, like they don't have the tags in place yeah. to really speak to these micro trends that exist right now and that are constantly, new ones are constantly a- arriving, right? So, you know, something that we talked about when we were preparing for this is like, what about these like so-called sustainable brands, right? I 
it doesn't seem to me, I mean, I don't really shop from a lot of the like big sustainable brands because they just aren't my aesthetic. I'm not interested. Um, But it seems like Gen Z is incredibly disinterested in these brands. When it comes to more sustainable, better for you branding, I think it, I've seen it work more for skincare brands mm-hmm. catering to Gen Z than to fashion. And I think the reality is for fashion, for a brand to be, quote, sustainable, to have that be a core part of their positioning and their product, it's going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's not an area that they can really compete in, which is why I think, unfortunately, over the last few years, we've seen more and more of these sustainable fashion brands many of which are women-owned, locally made, go out of business, which is really sad because I loved many of these Mm -hmm. brands, but they weren't as accessible or the styles were not as appealing to a younger generation who is not willing to spend that much on clothes. Mm -hmm. Unless it's a very status signaling item like, or they have a collector mindset for a specific bag, a specific brand, they're not going to be spending hundreds of dollars, even like 50 plus dollars on most items. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. I think that is one of the biggest obstacles there. But I also think there is like sort of a trend slash aesthetic obstacle as well, because, you know, you're not going to find Lana Del Rey coquette core as one of these brands or <laughs> Barbie core or dark academia or whatever has come and gone all these micro trends like those brands don't really speak to that because they're not about micro trends they're about like more longevity right more timeless appeal right. you know and uh that makes them more appealing to older customers it, and then the price point ensures that it's older customers you know and if I were to 25, I wouldn't be buying any of those brands either. Like once again, no judgment against Gen Z because I know if I were 25 right now, I would be buying something from Shein like every other day. You know, like that's just like what it is to be at that phase in your life and for that to be your best option. You know, for many people, fast fashion is the best option right now. And it's unfortunate. That's right. I think the expectation that if you're 25 or let's say you're 15 even, and that you are going to have these very considered purchases that you've done (laughs) this research, you've saved up for it. Like, let's be, be real. These are (laughs) teenagers and younger people who, why are we making those expectations on them when it's more of how do we address the people who are the 80% or the 20% of people who are contributing 80% mm-hmm. of the holes, the overconsumption, the influencing related to that. I think for the average consumer, buying a few fast fashion pieces to fill gaps in their wardrobe, to fulfill a certain aesthetic, that is a totally different customer that we're talking about mm-hmm. compared to someone who every month, every week is buying another haul from these fast fashion brands. Yeah, totally. I agree. And I mean, then there's a lot of that. Um, You know, every time I post on Instagram that, you know, on average Americans buy 70 new garments each year, people freak out. And they're like, how is that possible? And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like so easy. You know, it's It's so so easy. easy. And even as a a thrifter, I, I have to 
very measurably, mindfully not buy everything Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I see when it's like, oh, this is cute, or this is super unique, or this is a great deal. I really still have to catch myself and say, do I, do I actually like this? Do I need it? Will I wear it? How am I going to style this? And even though I know I could easily resell it on teleport on anywhere else, I, I still want to make sure that I'm not just buying for the sake of buying because I, I have now after 12 years of not buying any newly made clothes, just secondhand, gotten to the point where I've kind of like trained my brain to appreciate discovering, having that treasure hunt of an item Mm -hmm. thrifting without having to buy it. Like I don't have to own something anymore in order to appreciate it and to enjoy that item. I can just find it, see how beautifully it was made or how cool it is. I can go down my little rabbit hole and research the item and the cute little vintage brand tag. I can do all of that without having to actually own that item and spend money on that Mm -hmm. item. But it's definitely taken me time because in my early 20s, oh my goodness, I would go to my local Salvation Army or Goodwill on what was then 69 cent Saturdays. (laughs) They don't do this anymore. But the color of the week would be 69 cents. And I would buy the most horrendous looking vintage dresses, like 80s puff sleeve, shoulder pads, like drop waist, polyester satin type clothes. Mm -hmm. And I would upcycle them because I wanted to learn how to sew. And I thought this would be a good way where I can have fabric sustainably. Mm -hmm. And if I mess up, like not a big deal. But that was my like creative outlet Mm -hmm. when I was starting my first corporate job. And I was like at a computer at a desk all day and needed a way to like decompress and feel creative on the weekends. That's awesome, man. You just took me back. I I just remember going and I would fill like an entire cart, like anything that was remotely interesting, I would buy. And that's the thing is like, I mean, you know, we both know you can overconsume secondhand stuff too. And learning to stop that is, is work also, you know? Um, so I never feel like people should be like shifting their Shein habit into shopping secondhand, but there are things that have to happen in tandem to change our relationship with clothes in the first place, you know, and with stuff, right? right? It's, it's like, it's actually like a lot of work because whether we realize it or not, we have been trained our entire lives to believe that something new is always going to make you feel better that it's good to have new things all the time, that the more stuff you can buy, the better. There's this idea of like more, you know, like something I'll notice is like someone will go onto, you know, AliExpress or Shein and buy six Selkie dupes for one dress, right? They get the six Mm -hmm. dupes and they just spend as much money as they would have spent on one of the real thing. And you have to ask, like, did you need that many dresses? Is that what the need was? Or would one of the real thing that actually checked all the boxes have been better? And these are the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves all the time. And I think that's also, that's a sea change for many of us to say, oh, I don't need more. I just need what I love, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was a hard habit for me to break too, like, oh, I would rather just go buy 50 things at the thrift store because they were all $1 instead of spending $50 <laughs> on this one thing that I like really wanted. Do you know what I mean? 
Yes. It's hard. I have to say that the one thing, to be brutally honest, the one thing I cannot resist at the thrift store is a vintage wedding dress. <laughs> well, I'm glad like, I've been I've been married. There. I've been married for over 12 uh-huh. years. I don't need another wedding dress. But if I find a handmade vintage wedding dress at the thrift store at an estate sale, I oftentimes will get mm-hmm. it because I cannot <laughs> emotionally deal <laughs> with the reality that it will go to landfill. Oh, like there was um Shop Goodwill, which is Goodwill's online auction site a few months ago. They had this item up for sale that was like lot of wedding dresses. Whoa. And the picture was like a a huge cardboard box filled to the brim, <laughs> literally overflowing with wow. wedding dresses, some of which you could see had tags hanging <gasps> off of them still. Wow. And I was like, should I get this? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like, no, I don't need this at all. But just see, when you know more, sometimes mm-hmm. it's harder to take that step back and say, like, I can't solve this very specific problem, <laughs> even though I unfortunately know that 85% of all clothes are going to end up in landfill most of the clothes that you donate to the thrift store are not going to be sold. They're going to be shipped into bales and wholesale, sent off to the global south, polluting the world. Like it, it's just, it goes on and on. Right. But for wedding dresses, there's been two times over the last year that I have purchased a vintage wedding dress, not for me, but just because I'm like, I know someone out there, this is their dream dress. And I just need to like be patient and wait until. <laughs> the universe brings me this person. Right. And like, I will sell it at cost just so like that person can get a beautiful handmade item for like $40, whatever I paid for it. But that is, that is my one thing that I really can't resist. Yeah. I can, (laughs) I can understand that. That's, that's a, that's a feeling I relate to. Um, There are definitely a few things like that for me too. And like I said, it's, it has been a change for me and like who I am to go to the thrift store and not just throw everything I lo- like I remotely like in the cart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, like it's not like I wasn't pretty much engaging in the same behavior if I went to Forever 21. Like it's, you know, it, like. Oh, I throw it in the cart. Amanda, I throw it in the cart. And then you sort it at the end. I, yeah. And then I was sorted. And I was just, I made a video for TikTok the other day about this where I had probably 20 items in the cart and I ended up with one. Yeah. And just to normalize that you can whittle it down for each item Consider: Do I really like this? Does it fit? Is there a place for this? Do I have something pretty much the same and I'm just enthralled by a good deal <laughs> Yeah, and ending up with the one thing. And it was a 50 cent little pink uh, hat, like, like, what the British would wear to a royal wedding, this Ooh. cute little hat, and I'll wear it to the Barbie movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> where else am I going to wear this? We definitely, my husband and I, we are both very avid thrifters, and there's always the moment of truth. We go somewhere kind of adjacent to the cash wrap, but not, and we start sorting through these things and, like, discussing them and making difficult decisions. And, yeah, it's it's actually I don't know, in a weird way, it's kind of like the most fun part of it all to like really make sense of it. But I, mm-hmm. I didn't always have such a clear filter and certainly didn't, neither did my husband. And when we've been in places where the thrifting is like really good, 
uh, it's been more challenging to make those decisions. When you're like, yeah, but what if I never see this again? Like, I don't, well, what, what's your plan with it? You know, <laughs> like, like that, yes. that's the hard part. It's a really, a really hard part. And I, uh, I would suspect it can be very similar when you're shopping Shein and you're just like, ah, but, mm-hmm. but this is cute too, you know? And so it's yes. this, cause they're going to, they're going to keep serving you what you like. And it gets really, really hard. It gets to that mindset though we talked about. Do you have more of a consumer mindset where it's just buy, buy, buy? You're not really going to enjoy that item, wear it, style it in new ways versus a collector. Mm-hmm. Cause I think there are certain things where if you do love thrifting, you do love finding unique items for a collection. I think there is a place for that while still not dipping into overconsumption. Yeah. Yeah. Because absolutely. it's just, it's a different way of acquiring something. And then you're likely going to retain it for a lot longer versus mm-hmm. a consumption mindset. You're buying it essentially to rent it and then get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really like thinking about it that way because I, I do, I do think that is what the behavior is. Um, and if only, mm-hmm. I guess just like resale, like you were saying, were even easier than it is right now, because I think those things could move on to new homes even faster. Um, if, if it was easier to find the things that you like. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? 
Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Thanks to Danielle for spending time with me. The second half of our conversation will be coming in two weeks, not next week, because I'm taking next week off. Why? It's my birthday, and I have plans to ride a swan boat, eat delicious food, and spend quality time with Dustin in Mexico City. It's going to be a half birthday, half hooray you quit your job celebration. 
In the meantime, you should definitely check out Teleport, which you can download in the app store of your choice. I really do think it checks a lot of boxes that the rest of the resale platforms just aren't, I don't know, you know, checking. I can't help but look at Poshmark and Depop as old school at this point. They're kind of like missing that personal community element, not unlike Forever 21 and Zara, right? And I'm excited to see what secondhand 3.0 looks like with apps like Teleport leading the drive. All right, well, that's all for this week. If you have thoughts about ultra fast fashion, why you opt for it or skip it, or how secondhand shopping could be better in this secondhand 3.0 that's coming, tell us all about it. You can drop me an email at amanda at clotheshorse.world, or you can even record a voice memo and send it to me that way. You can also call the Clothes Horse Hotline, and I'll leave that number in the show notes. I would love to include your thoughts in the second half of this series coming in two weeks, so don't procrastinate. As I said in my conversation with Danielle, if I were 15 or 20 or even 25 right now, and I didn't know the things that I know now, I would 100% be buying stuff from Shein. I would probably be buying dupes of Selkie dresses on AliExpress. It's easy to be on an ethical high horse when you have a lot more life experience and knowledge, right? As I've said many times before, we have to meet people where they are and help them find better options and share our knowledge without shaming them but rather we want to be understanding and supporting them. And yeah, that's a challenge. So is changing our habits, like understanding that more isn't always better and that less can be more satisfying, that new stuff isn't usually the solution to our problems and that retail therapy is not, well, therapy. We're all working on this ourselves, right? I know I am. And I'm excited for us to bring in more people to work on this alongside us. Remember, one person can't change the world alone, but when we all work together as a community, as people supporting people, we can make some serious change in this world. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you liked what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. And thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White, who's totally fine with turning off the AC on a 106 degree day. Thank you, Dustin, for all of our music, audio support, and patience. All right. Talk to you all in two weeks. Bye.